Hey gang, it's John. Thank you for listening to another Deep Dive. This time we are welcoming back seven-time Grammy-winning producer, mixer, engineer, Steve Thompson. Steve is always a riot, a blast to talk to. And this time we are talking about the 1984 album by John Lennon and Yoko Ono, Milk and Honey. Now this album's a little interesting because it was, it's half and half. Half the songs are Yoko's, which were done in real time in 1984-ish. And the other half are John's songs that were left behind when he was murdered in 1980. So this album is a little bit of a hodgepodge, but we talked with Steve who worked on it about what it was like. Now this one's a little different because obviously John wasn't there. And this conversation kind of goes all over the place. We sort of breeze through the Milk and Honey album, out of order, by the way. And, but that usually that's just more of like a launch pad for Steve and I to talk about a bunch of other topics. And it's really interesting. He got really close to John and Yoko and Sean Lennon at the time and everything. So hearing these stories are just Steve's life is one of a kind, one of a kind. So anyway, you get to hear about Milk and Honey. You get to hear about John and, and Yoko. And then we get to hear from the great Steve Thompson. Hope you enjoy this. I guess I should start. I'm not really... How are you involved in this album? What did you do? <laughs> are you talking about the John Lennon Milk and Honey? Yeah, yeah. All right, let me let me give you a little bit of history. I was working with Klaus Vorman mm-hmm. on a band uh, called Trio at the time. And I didn't know he did this, but he recommended me to Yoko to work on the album. Basically, Yoko was looking for the right people to put this album together because at the end of the day, these were some tracks left over from Double Fantasy, and most of them were demos that John never finished. I didn't know Klaus did that, and then I got a call from Yoko's office. She liked to meet with me, and I went to her apartment at the Dakota, and she sat down interviewed me in red tarot cards. <laughs> really? <laughs> I swear to God. I said, okay. So I did the interview. I left. And, you know, I was still DJing at night at clubs. And I get a call probably about a month later from her assistant, Sam Havitroy, about 5 o'clock in the morning. It says, Yoko would like to meet with you now. Now, understand, I was living in Long Island. So that means uh, I just got out of work at the club. You know, you get out at 4 o'clock in the morning. Uh-huh. So I rushed in there, rushed in there to get to Dakota. I didn't even see Yoko. Sam just says, uh, "You got the job." Really? That was it. I mean, I said you couldn't tell me that over the phone. <laughs> <laughs> so, long story short, I'll just give you the history because again, you have to understand this is what 1984 somewhere around there. Yeah, uh, yeah, it comes out I'm early '84. I have limited memory on maybe track by track, but I can give you the whole gist of what happened. Okay. So anyway, I'm, I'm meeting with Yoko, and I was working with Mike Barbiero at the time, my, my partner. And she told me her vision. She goes, well, I'd like to bring in Paul Schaefer and musicians in to enhance what's already there. So I studied this song. I said, Yoko, let's just mix it the way it is. There's a certain charm here to put additional musicians on. I I really, every day I kept saying, you know, she had a mind made up. She wanted, and I love Paul. Paul's great, great band. But I just felt for this album, let's keep it uh, true to what it was and try to make it sound as good as possible. Yeah. 
So after back and forth, she agrees, okay, let's try it. So we got to lose Joko. You know, we can mix him, and at the end of the day, you're unhappy. You know, bring the musicians in. And yeah. the first song we mix is Nobody Told Me It'd Be Days Like These. back up here for a second you you never you weren't involved with lennon and yoko while they were or well i guess yoko created these songs after the fact so the original demos that lennon lennon did they were handed to you and you fought for keeping them the pure uh, pure as they were keeping them as they were because there was a certain charm there yeah i had i had a uh, I'm, I'm pretty strong-minded at times sometimes it's uh-huh. my demise right but I, I just felt like, you know, I was in this situation with uh, Freddie Mercury as well. Uh, but that's a story for another time. I was going to work on some of his stuff after he passed on. And uh, everybody's saying, you got to bring musicians. And I said, yeah, okay, I don't mind bringing musicians in if they're members of Queen. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a story for another time. Okay. So, you know, these songs, again, were made probably during the double fantasy sessions they were yeah i guess they weren't ready for that album but these are songs john was working on until he died some were recorded just on a a cassette that's right there's a couple of those you said you mentioned nobody told me that was the first single and uh it was a big hit and uh this came out in i think early 84 well the album came out january 27th 1984 my understanding is that, yes, these were leftovers from the Double Fantasy period. Jack Douglas was involved with the, the Double Fantasy album, and I think right. he had something to do with this, but there was some kind of a rift between him and Yoko or something, and he got cut out. Do you remember, did you work at all with Jack Douglas on any of these things? No, I assume Jack probably worked on them before I got involved. It was just uh, Michael Barbiero and myself on these tracks, you know, okay. when we went into the studio. Okay. So when you are handed something like Nobody Told Me, which I believe was written and meant for a Ringo solo album, but obviously never got there, what did you did you do anything? Did you just keep it? Because there's the raw quality, kind of garage band quality to the John Lennon songs on the album is so perfect. And you nailed it, leaving it the way that it was. But did you do anything? Oh, we mixed it. We got... Okay. You know, we, we, we put it through the console. Let's see, where do we work? I'm trying to remember what studio we did this at. But, you know, I, I you know, 
Michael and myself knew John's vocal effects, the way his vocal should sound. You know, we put we mixed all the elements of, of, of the tracks that were there. It just basically blew it up, you know, yeah. just made it sound big, rich, but it's still, they had a raw quality to it. Right, right. Um, there's his, uh, like I said, his songs on here all kind of sound that way. The first one, I'm Stepping Out, yeah. was the third single off of the album. You know, just has to get out of the house. He's been looking at, the, you know, the kids for days and days. He's been watching the dishes and screwing around and watching Sesame until he's going crazy. Woke up this morning, blues around my head. No need to ask the reason why. Went to the kitchen and lit a cigarette. Blew my worries to the sky. I'm stepping out. Sort of funny it begins with the the song begins with almost some like studio chatter you know and uh he talks about being like a house husband who's who can't stand staying home and watching sesame street anymore he's got to get out yeah and at the end he says goodbye and stuff like that it's really nice to hear him sort of laid back uh well, i think you know again i went to the dakota every day and i used to play with sean every day you know, before I go to the studio, we used to roughhouse and all that. And my feeling, again, I wasn't there, but, you know, and I worked with Julian Lennon. And I think John might have felt guilty. Again, this is my only come from me. My gut feeling is John felt guilty not being there for Julian. And he wasn't going to make that mistake with uh, Sean. You know, that's my feeling. And plus, you know, that uh, he got out of music for a while and... Became uh, what he said as a house mom, you know, just watching over Sean, taking care of him. And, you know, when you're as talented as John, how, how far, how, how long can you stay away from music? True. Yeah, that's very true. So what then, are you heavily involved then in the creation of the Yoko songs? Because hers were, were done after the fact and are very heavily produced. Like, for instance, the second track, Sleepless Night.
Lots of echo on there. It sounds very modern. I always felt that. Well, let's establish something here for a second. Actually, how do? Where do you stand on Yoko? Because you know, a lot of people love her and a lot of people hate her. Again, she's not for everyone. I respect her as an artist, and you know, she's eclectic. I was more involved on the John songs, to tell you the truth. There, oh. When Yoko started doing her songs, I, I, she worked with Michael on those. Okay. Okay. Yeah, the uh, yeah the Sleepless Night track is um, really interesting. Has a lot of again, it sounds very modern compared to everything else. But she, uh, I have to admit, I, you know, it's tempting to be frustrated with her, like you said, because of all the reasons. My feeling was always that if they if John hadn't died, they would have gotten divorced very soon after the, all of this anyway. So we're left with her being like the, you know, carrying the torch for John Lennon. I, and I don't know her. I don't have any strong feelings one way or the other, but it just feels like if he hadn't died, they would have gotten divorced eventually. And Well, understand, understand a couple things about Yoko. She's very smart, very business savvy. I think her father started the Bank of Tokyo, if I'm not mistaken. Might be right. And John spent money like it was water, and I think John gave her a million or two million, and she parlayed that into probably a billion dollars. Very smart. So she basically kept that family afloat financially. Interesting. Like business dealings. Again, I felt, you know, I felt John's presence in the studio when I was working there. Don't ask me why. And I feel there was a love connection there. You know, John John was a loose cannon. You know, I remember meeting him. in a club in New York City, I think it was, was it called Club 82. It was kind of like a glam tranny club where I okay. saw Wayne County open up for like New York Dolls or something like that. And I met, it was interesting. One night I met Lennon, Bowie, and Jagger all at the same time. <laughs> I, I mean, little did I know that I'd actually work with them. I mean, this is way before I you know, started making music. This is probably uh-huh. probably anywhere between 72 and 74, maybe. Whoa. Somewhere around there. But, you know, knowing John's history, he was a loose cannon. You know, yeah. I mean, everybody knows about his lost days in L.A. And it was kind of interesting. Uh, during the sessions, Joker had a party there, and I got to meet Harry Nielsen and Roberta Flack. And Harry, I mean, I, what it's such a talented guy. He had some stories to say. I hate to get up tangent here, but. <laughs> Bring it. Whatever you want. Nah, you know, some things are less better than said, but he seemed like the life of the party. I mean, when he yeah. walked in the studio, everybody's face was a glow you know uh-huh <laughs> and he definitely had a, a a very strong relationship with john as well mm-hmm. yeah. but as far as the album goes again it was our job to make it sound as good as it possibly can sound mm-hmm. sonically if we had, they had a couple elements here or there you know but it was basically done on a console with outboard gear and a lot of uh tlc yeah and it was, it was, it was, you know, I think it was a song called Girl Old With Me. Girl, 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 girl,
I'm sure I think that was on a cassette. See, John, sometimes when he writes songs, he put a little ghetto blaster on top of piano, press record, and that's how you got it. Yeah. So, I mean, when you when you put a song like that, and you can't mix individual tracks, because it's all on one cassette. So you have to put it through the console and, and try to rein in certain frequencies and kind of blow up the picture. Not an easy thing to do. Right. Yeah, that grolled with me. That that You're right. That's just him at a piano. He intended that song to be played at weddings. He was writing a wedding song, and uh, which is, it, it seems like such a lovey-dovey, soft move for someone like John Lennon to make, but he was great at it. And uh, it has sort of a drum machine happening in the back. Was that, did he add the drum machine? Was that playing while he was recording it on his home piano? Or did you guys add that part in later? Uh, no, no, he, he definitely did that before. Again, we had no, okay. we had, we were not involved in the recording process of any of his uh, demos. But, you know, John actually did like dance music. Yeah, yeah. Which, and so, you know, being a New Yorker and, you know, going to the club scene, you know, it was pretty obviously like that. So certain, yeah. certain songs would have a groove to it. And, you know, experiment with drum machines at that point. So that would probably have to be early 80s that was done. So I'm trying to think with drum. Yeah, they had a lot of drum machines around at that point. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that song, Grolled With Me, was a companion piece with a song of Yoko's called Let Me Count The Ways, which is also a home demo, and it's her on a piano. And it's actually really, really beautiful. That's what I was going to say earlier, is that it, you can scoff at Yoko if you want, but this, her songs on this album are really strong. A lot of them are, anyway. Oh, I, I, would, never, I would never scoff at Yoko. I yeah. Mean, she's an artist. If you love her, great. If you don't, you know, that's it's personal taste. But, uh, you know, she's very, very talented, you know? Uh -huh. And obviously, when you hear a Yoko song, you know it's Yoko. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Very true. Yeah, she uh, so she records this song. Let me count the ways on on her home. It's a home demo as well. She he, John is on vacation in Bermuda, and she plays it for him over the phone, which I just think is man. How would that be? You know, the husband's off in vaca on vacation in Bermuda, and I'm gonna stay home and make some music, and I'm gonna call him, and here's my newest song. I'm gonna play it for you over the phone. That's just how things were done back then. And I guess if you're a Beatle, you can run off to Bermuda whenever you want for uh, 
on vacation, those would be that would be nice. Well, Stevie Wonder actually started uh, record over the phone type things in the seventies. He was always a big fan of technology, and he used used it all when he was recording. Did you ever work with him? No, I wish I did. He's on my list. Oh, but I mean, yeah. you know, I grew up with his album in a Visions talking book and what uh, brilliant artist, but that's for yeah. another music yeah. yeah, he's the best. Okay, let me ask you this. My favorite song on the album is I Don't Wanna Face It, which is uh, another John track. Mm-hmm. Assume you worked on that. It, uh, I'm trying to figure, the thing I love about it is it's just got this really killer guitar riffage happening in there. And there are a lot of people as being credited on playing in the album, but I don't know who's doing what. Do you know, is Earl Slick uh, the one playing the guitar on that song? I believe so, yeah. Earl's a, yeah. Good, Earl's a good friend. I used to hire him. He was like, I used to hire him all the times when, I, you know, when we did Dancing in the Streets with Mick Jagger and Bowie. I felt the guitars felt kind of short when I was mixing it, so I brought Earl Slick in to redo all the guitars. Yeah. He how he had to have been, because he started really young. When he started playing with Bowie in the 70s, I think he was only like 16, 15 years old. Does that right. sound right? That sounds about right, yeah. That's crazy. So, um, okay, so Earl gets with John, and uh, I think Tony Levin might be on bass on this yeah. one. It would sound right, correct. Okay, he's amazing too. Andy yep. Newmark, I believe, is on drums, possibly on this one. And this song just is killer. It kicks off Eins by Hickle Fickle. Yeah, that's awesome. a typical, that's a typical Johnism. That's what I was just gonna say. <laughs> that's what I was just gonna say. Yeah, I love this one. Okay, something else I want to ask you about. The next song after this is Yoko's, and it's called "Don't Be Scared," and it's kind of a reggae vibe. Thank you. 
and there's two or three songs on this album that are that have a reggae feel and with the dub explosion that was kind of happening i guess it started in the uk bands like the clash and uh, all the two-tone stuff are really in what is it with reggae that was happening right then that all everybody seemed to be sort of embracing it at once? Do you know? Well, you know, I I was very fortunate to work with on Bob Marley's Legend album. I worked with Steel Pulse and I worked with Ziggy Marley. Okay. And Blackwell, right? He he owned the the label. Uh-huh. Of Chris Blackwell Island Chris Records. Blackwell, right? And so reggae was always popular, like in New York and everything like that, especially in the seventies and eighties, you know. And obviously, if you go to the islands, you can experience that music. Now, why why would you think bands like The Clash would have a little reggae influence in them? Well, I you know, it's subjective, you know. I mean, I, I don't know. Uh, reggae to me was just like a really cool vibe, you know. I used to go to yeah. Sunsplash every year in Jamaica. I loved it, you know. I just like the vibe. It's just reggae to me is obviously it could be very political, which is cool, uh, but. You know, it's just, to me, it's like, you know, I feel like I'm on a beach when I hear reggae. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's an es- escapism to me. Yeah. Yeah, it just seemed to be embraced by so many people right around that time. Typically on alternate, like I said, the punk bands well, think, were going to Yeah, I think it's up because of political consciousness as well. Mm-hmm. You know, take bands yeah. like The Clash, they were that way. John was obviously that way. Yeah. And there's a lot of people, and reggae music was very political consciousness. It was the rap before rap. Yeah, good point. You know? Well so. said, yeah. Yeah. Did you, my understanding was, do you know the guy Don Letts? Do you know who Don Letts is? Why is that name ringing a bell? Well, he's a he's a black guy, British guy. He was in Big Audio Dynamite with Mick Jones. Oh, okay, but- okay, sure. He was also kind of like you. He was a DJ and a producer, and now he's a filmmaker, sort of a jack of all trades. And he was, my understanding is that he was sort of, he was the guy that in the, in London, everybody came over to his place and played records. You know, he was that kind of focal point. And because I believe he might be from Jamaica, he's definitely got like a head full of dreads and stuff Uh that um, he's the one playing everybody. These really hot reggae albums probably straight from jamaica that no one knows and that's kind of what's turning everyone on and so i wondered if you knew who don was and if he was kind of the the linchpin for a lot of this stuff well now that i remember his face now but with the big audio dynamite makes sense i didn't know him personally but again my reggae background obviously i I played it as a dj Mm -hmm. i I mean you had crossover songs like third world and 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 stuff like that and you know, I did a Bob Marley medley for of the Legends album, so you you found the right set for them. And you know, let's face it, you know, it's to me, it's the it's the music that never broke that should have. Yeah, <laughs> true. Know? Yeah, yeah. Still waiting for that day. You know. Yeah. It has moments. It uh, it never like takes over completely. It's more uh, maybe people feel like a little reggae goes a long way. I'm not sure, but anyway. It's, well, yeah, uh, you had artists like Rihanna put a little reggae tinge into what they do. They tried to, you know, bring it more pop. True. You know, once usually in the summer times, you always find the pop R and B artists do some type of reggae influence type song. I think Beyonce might have done it as well. Yeah, you know? yeah, I think you're right. John, as I mentioned, also kind of has a reggae track called "Borrow Time," which is was yeah, the right. second single off of that album. Living confusion. 
-hmm. And um, so, yeah, do you, one thing I have to, I have to be a little critical of John for a minute. As great a Beatle as he was, I've always felt like his solo stuff, he didn't seem to kind of embrace. You mentioned him being really into dance music, and I've heard interviews of him talking about that. I remember him saying what a huge fan he was of Rock Lobster by the B-52s. That just blew his mind. But I never felt like his music reflected modern, you know, new wave new studio techniques it always felt like it was kind of rooted in old school eddie cochran buddy holly type stuff whereas yoko really embraces everything that's happening and her songs on her all reflect the latest sounds i mean if anything this album does her a service because her vision is meeting the technology of the time whereas i don't feel like john ever quite got there does that make sense I was well, Paul yeah. got there. Paul yeah. McCartney embraces everything. John, I feel like it's sort of stuck in the past. Well, I, I know them both, okay? In fact, yeah. I was going to work with Paul, and I kind of passed on it because I didn't feel that the songs were quite there yet. And I said, you know, I, I had a big meeting with Paul. And you know what it was like to turn down working with Paul McCartney? <laughs> wasn't easy. But if my name's going to go on, I, I got to, you know, I, I wanted to make sure it was the best Paul McCartney record ever. But uh. as far as John goes, you have to understand a couple things about John. We all know that. He was influenced by Chuck Berry and, and, and that old rock and roll vibe, okay? Would, I think if he would have lived, I think he might have embraced that. But I think, you know, when he was doing Double Fantasy, he was at a turning point of just getting back into making music again. So I think it'd be kind of unfair to say, okay, I'm going to make this amazing dance track. I think he just wanted to get established first. And I think that, again, this is all subjective. This is what I'm thinking. You know, I, I think if he had more time, he'd start embracing the new technology and everything and new ways to make music and new ways to collaborate. Yeah. But I, I would assume that he was just getting back on the horse again. Yeah. Yeah. I I have to, you kind of dropped this bomb earlier talking about hanging out at the Dakota with Sean. Tell me one or two things that were in the Lennon Ono apartment. <laughs> well, everything was all white, and she had a sarcophagus in her living room. Really? That? Yeah. <laughs> Sounds so right. <laughs> wow. Everybody who worked, they was kind of treated with, you know, treating everybody with kid gloves and everything. And I, and I walk in there, and I start roughhousing with Sean. Uh-huh. I'll never forget this one time. And I'm roughhousing with him, and... Yoko comes walking in. We're getting ready to go to the studio. He goes, Mommy, Mommy, how come nobody plays with me like Steve does? Really? <laughs> I wanted to cry right there. I said, well, yeah. this, you know, I just hope he's not being sheltered. Yeah. Obviously, he's not. But, you know, you always worry about that being too sheltered. Totally. Well, and I could see that. I mean, you know, he's their little precious piece of gold. They're not going to mess with him or, you know, roughhouse with him like you are. That's so funny. How old would he have been around this time? Probably 10 maybe uh probably less than that okay i have pictures from the sessions um, that's wild my guess between six and nine maybe okay. i could be off by a year or two <laughs> yeah nobody has stories like you steve you're one of a kind you know this well everybody says make a movie i would think i'd make almost famous look like a, a fairy tale yeah do you ever think about like uh i don't know writing a book or Starting your own podcast where you can tell these stories or anything, or do you just like keeping them to yourself? Well, you know, I was thinking maybe doing a movie in a book. Mm. 
Well, we should throw in another uh, Yoko song here. There's a short, uh, like a one minute track called Oh Sanity. It's only sane to be insane. Psychotic film, a castle, a neurotic lives in it. I don't know what to do with my sanity. When the world's at the verge, of calamity Oh sanity Oh sanity What am I to do with you Drink up, shoot up Anything you please But she's always standing behind me Like a devil in hell Oh sanity Sanity it's so Yoko, but it also, uh, it sounds like maybe it was sort of a poem put to music. Again, I guess I'm guessing, I, I, I'm guessing you didn't work that closely with the Yoko stuff, so you don't know no, the story that was, behind that one. Michael really, uh, Michael and Yoko really worked together on those. I, I, okay. I can't take any credit for that. Okay. Uh, something else I was finding online were some of the people involved, not just studio musicians, but even people singing backup. There's not a lot of songs on here where I, could even detect backup singers. One of them was the Don't Be Scared song by Yoko. But if I look online, the Alessi brothers are on here somewhere singing uh, backup. Do you know them? Yeah, I know of them, yeah. Okay. They're on there somewhere. And then it says Carlos Alomar is singing backup somewhere in there. Boy, I call this a good friend of mine. I got to ask him about that. Okay. It wouldn't surprise me, to tell you the truth. Really? And I thought it was interesting that he was listed as backing vocals, but not guitar. Well, don't forget, Carlos, all the vocals he sang with Bowie. I mean, yeah. Carlos was basically Bowie's music director. Yeah, yeah. And uh, me and Carlos are, are very close. In fact, when I got in, uh, elected into the Long Island Music Hall of Fame, Carlos uh, was my sponsor, introduced me. Which was really? Cool. Yeah, I mean, I love him to death, and his beautiful wife, Robin, you know, we worked, yeah. we worked a lot together. When I first started working with Bowie, I brought Carlos in to be like, since Bowie wasn't there, I wanted to bring Carlos in to be Bowie's ear, you know, mm -hmm. and, um, love him. Very talented guy. He's a great singer too. I huh. mean, if, if David lost his voice, he, Carlos could do it. That's amazing. Yeah. I've had them both on here and Robin is just about the nicest lady in the world. Oh, she's I love her. Okay, another Yoko song is Your Hands, it, which is really interesting. Your skin so 
It sounds, um, this was very obviously recorded after he had died because it's talking about kind of the dreams that she's having of him where she still dreams about his hands and his skin and she's concerned about being alone forever. No matter how many times we meet, it's not enough. She also breaks into Japanese on here a few times and it sounds so kind of vital and urgent, like she's almost purging herself of, of something. Maybe this is too personal a question. I don't know how well you know Yoko, but I've always had the impression that she... I don't know if she was ever in another relationship after John. Maybe that would the optics on her having another boyfriend or another husband or something wouldn't have been good, and so she didn't do it, or was she... Did it just not ever happen? Do you know? Do you know her well enough to know that? That's a question I would ask Yoko. I'm not going to get involved... Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, I know, you know, for a fact, there was such a love that Yoko had for John. And I know there was reciprocal. I, I had that vibe. When okay. he said he would have divorced later, I don't know. Okay. okay. You know, there was a love there. Yoko was just dedicated to John. She worshipped him, you know. Yeah. What she did after on, you know, that's her thing. I don't okay. like involving people's personal matters. Definitely understood. I'm not, I'm not looking for dirt. I just wondered if... Um, I've never heard of any further relationships beyond John, and I wondered if there were if there were some, and I just didn't know what they are. Speaking of relationships, we should touch on this because it's it's kind of an unfortunate thing, but it came up in some of my research, which is that she at the time was getting kind of restless with him. They were both, you know, he had his last weekend that was a year and a half with May Pang, and I think. Yoko's having an affairs with other people and they're both getting kind of restless with each other. And so splitting the album was sort of a, a, a diplomatic move to, you know, get her more involved. Let's get, let me give you half this album and you make it what you want. Do you know any of the kind of side politics that are relationship politics that may have been going on at the time about that? I'll be honest with you. You know, I really focused on the music and, yeah. and the business at hand. I didn't like to get, you know, obviously everybody knows, but I, I actually met May Pang a couple of years ago and we talked for a while, you know, and, and, you know, I mean, the story's out there that Yoko set uh, John up with May in L.A. to keep an eye on him, mm -hmm. whatever. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Right. But, you know, as far as, again, I worked on this after John passed on. So it wasn't like I was there every day to see any friction between them both, you know. Yoko had a strict regimen. I, you know, we every day I go to Dakota and I go to the studio with Yoko, play with Sean for a little bit. We had a regimen, and then one day she decided to have a birthday party at the studio. Mm. So, she, you know, she never met my wife to be my, you know, she was my girlfriend at the time. She never met Joanne. Mm. And so I brought Joanne to the party, and then Yoko just. She changed after that day. That's the really? Yeah. She changed. Wild. Huh. Yeah, I don't want to get into that any further, but... Okay, okay. Interesting. It was a different woman after that day. I can see that. Okay. <clears throat> All right, there's one more John song to talk about. Forgive Me, My Little Flower Princess. Thank you. 
Thank you, thank you. My little. Did you forgive me, my little flower princess? Never too late unless you can't fall. So it also has another kind of a reggae vibe to it. It sounds to me like some guys in the studio maybe warming up, you know, like a song that it's not. This of all the songs, I think, is probably the least fleshed out. But again, that's the charm of these songs. But this one I could see in its in, this song is feels the most in its infant stages and could have been become something different. But I'm glad it wasn't. I'm glad it stayed the way it was. Um, do you remember any kind of stories behind this one? Well, again, you have to understand John's writing process and how he approaches songs. And it's been well documented. He likes to horse around, clown around. I mean, you could even look at the Beatles things. You know, you could see all the funny faces he would put on while they're singing a song and this and that. And a lot of times it's improvisation. Uh-huh. You, know, you know, these songs, I mean, that, you know, again, a lot of them were demos. Obviously, they would have been perfected. I'm sure John would not have just let them go the way they were. They were demos. Yeah. So, uh, again, we just want to put material together that, you know, kind of held up and show the charm of where John's, you know, musical style was at that time, you know? Right. And again, right. they've been developed. They had access to the best musicians in the world. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, you know, I just didn't feel it would be proper to add musicians to these songs. Again, it was just me. Yeah, so I'll take, I think that was the right call. I'll credit on that, but I just felt it would be wrong to, it would be very easy to uh, polish something. But I don't know, I, I just felt like a purist at the time. Let's, let's, yeah. let's keep the charm of them. Yeah, I agree with you. So I'm curious, before we get to the last song, which is my second favorite on the album, I, I did want to ask you, when, when you and I were going back and forth about this album, and, or what album to do for one of these deep dive episodes, you had mentioned that this is an album you don't get to talk about very often. So I wondered why you felt like this was the thing that you wanted to kind of explore of all the things you've done, you know? Well, it seems like I've done 5 million interviews on basically almost all the stuff I worked on. And this is the first time anybody, you know, talked about yeah. with John Lennon. I mean, you know, I, I grew up as a kid. Loving the Beatles and the Stones. was Did I have a favorite at the time? I kind of like the Stones because they were a little more gritty and streetier. Yeah. But, you know, through the years, I mean, I became such a Beatle fan just because of what they were able to achieve. I think Lennon and McCartney are two of the best pop songwriters ever. I think they both needed each other, to tell you the truth. You know, I, I think you could look at Paul's solo project, you look at John's, but them together, it's just... And again, George Harrison was the unsung hero of the Beatles, as far as my book. Yep. He, always, he always fought to get his songs on the albums. And then when he left the Beatles, he became so prolific. I mean, that wasn't by chance. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I, I do a lot of research with the artists I work on before you get involved with them. You know, I got to see what makes them work. This and I, Same with John. I mean, I knew a lot about him, but I dug him deeper before I started the project. You know, figuring out how his voice would sound the best and music and this and that so i do a lot of homework mm. and at the end of the day i wanted to feel like he was in the studio when we were doing this mm. yeah i could see that were these the only songs left over or did you have a hand in hand picking six that you thought were the best 
or what was the was this everything? You know, that's a good question. I'm not sure now to tell you the truth. Hmm. I don't know if I got to pick him or, or Yoko picked him. Okay. I'm not sure. I'll tell you the truth. Again, it was 84. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it was a while ago. Yeah, it was a while ago. I'm just trying to think how those six were done. I'm not sure. Okay, okay. I wondered if they gave you a pile of demos and you went, these are the six that I think should be on the record, or if they said, here's six more songs, do with them whatever you want to do, you know? I wish I could remember. I can't believe I can't remember that. That's a okay. good question, but I'm I don't want to give you a wrong answer. That's all right. Okay, last song on the album is called You're the One, and this is my second favorite song, and it's a Yoko song. And I love it because it's very funky and uh, very new wave. It sounds very modern. It's very produced. There's a bomb sound at the beginning. Very heavy drum and bass sound going on. It sounds like something you might have played in one of your clubs at the time, you know, when you were DJing. Well, I mean, we played like, what was it, Walking on Thin Ice? That was a big club hit. Mm, true. Good point. Yeah. You know, uh, Yoko was very attached to, you know, new school and clubs and everything like that. She knew what was going on. Yeah. But how it would relate to John's songs, again, I, I feel he would have been more modernized if he would have lived. Again, you had Double Fantasy and, again, Milk and Honey were demos, basically. So I think I, I think he would have opened his mind up more. It just didn't yeah. happen, unfortunately. Do you remember where you were when you heard he got killed? Yeah, I was in New York, and it just absolutely devastated me. Let's see. What was that, 81? Yeah, I think it was uh, December 8th or January 8th, 1981. Yeah, I believe that's it. Absolutely devastating when I saw that. You know, you yeah. know, the, the biggest thing that, that brings out of my mind is the bloodstained glasses. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That, and it, Yoko that, put those on the cover of her next album. Yeah, that freaked me out. Absolutely yeah. freaked me out. You know, again, I went to the guitar, Dakota every day. I know the security there. And I know that John and Paul were talking about getting the Beatles back together again. Were they? 
man. You know, they would talk, I guarantee at some point they would have. I really feel they would have. Because oh. I think John needed to establish himself again. Paul was, you know, doing a solo thing. Ringo was doing Ringo. And George was being George. But I think at some point they would have gotten back together again. I really do. Yeah. been great. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, I thought that uh, George Martin would, was perfect match for, for that band. Right. Me what, too. He, what he did on uh, arrangements, orchestrations. Uh, I mean, you know, they had four tracks to work with. <laughs> I mean, we it's have like five thousand tracks to work with. We can't make it as good as those four tracks. It's so, true. It's a lot of work. Yeah. Um, I should clarify. It was December eighth, nineteen eighty. I would have been seven years old, and I remember seeing, uh, like you know, breaking news footage happening in the background of my house and everything. But I was yeah, still kind of too I young. To... News Channel Seven. Yeah, I yep. saw. Uh, I was either. Let's see. What 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 hour was it? Was it 1980. Eight? Was it about eight o'clock at night or something like that? Oh, good question. I think it was. Yeah, it was in the. I remember it was dark because yeah. there's a famous picture of him signing an autograph with the Chapman guy in the background, and it's nighttime. Yeah. yeah. So what day would that fall on? Uh December eighth. I should look this up. I might have been on my way working to a club. I'm trying to think. Let's see. Uh, he died at 10:50. Pronounced dead at 11 p.m. that night. Well, I remember watching the news that day, so I had to have been home. Okay. I was in Long Island. Okay. How big was their apartment at the Dakota? Was it like a penthouse? Oh, it was beautiful. Really? White, white carpets. Absolutely gorgeous, yeah. Huh. Did, did they have a studio inside the house? No, but they also had a house in Cold Spring Harbor, if I'm mistaken. In fact, I think... Uh, Imagine might have been uh, the video might have been recorded from the house in Cold Spring Harbor. Okay, okay, all right. Now you mentioned working with Julian. What's he like? I love Julian. I worked on a song called "Too Late for Goodbyes," which is I love that song. You worked on that? Yeah. Oh, uh, Julian and I were very close in the eighties. You know, we huh. hung out together, went to the China Club together. We had a little posse, and I always kind of felt bad because Julian, I, I said, you know what? Why don't we put together the Beatles with the kids? You know, you have Julian, you have George's son. I mean, Julian, I, I even told Paul. I said, you know, Julian can be your 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 John. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I he had that. He's got the voice. He's got the talent. Yeah. And he wound off living in France. But he was such a pleasure to work with, you know. Phil Ramone uh, produced that track, and I did additional production and everything on it. Huh? So it was quite. It was quite a team. Yeah. Um, speaking of kind of more politics stuff going on, uh, one thing I understood was that I think uh, Double Fantasy came out on Geffen Records, right. and this one came out on Polydor because in between then uh, those times, Yoko and David Geffen had had a falling out. Do you know anything about this? Well, I worked very closely with David, like with Guns N' Roses and everything. We never really discussed Yoko's thing, but uh, as far as the politics, so I, that, that's a great question because I remember Double Fantasy was on Geffen, and I know that I was doing a lot of work with Polydor at the time, so yeah, I, I didn't really enter my mind to tell you the truth. That was okay. Table. But okay. you know, David's, David's headstrong. You know, David is David. Yeah. So what happened between them, who the hell knows? I okay. Don't know. When you're working on a project like this, do you just do it and wherever it, you do, you're not really emotionally involved in the label or 
depending on what label it is, you've got certain bosses and certain overhead and a certain chain of command expecting things from you. Does that make sense? I, I view it, I can't tell if you are like a free agent who does your thing and then just sends it off to whoever wants it, or if you have a boss that's expecting things from you in a deadline and finish this and finish that, and that well, boss is tied to the label. First of all, there's nobody a, a bigger critic on my work than me. Mm. Okay, I, you know, my bar is a lot higher even than the people like Clyde Davis, David Giffins. And, you know, there's some strange reason. Anytime I work for label, I usually work with the label president. So, yeah, you know, I want the person in charge, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, when I work with Clive Davis, I mean, oh, I told him when he was full of shit. You know, I, I told <laughs> everyone who had the balls to tell him that. But, you know, I, that's, I think, why Clive liked me. Uh -huh. I, I know what he expects. I mean, uh, I remember when I worked with Whitney Houston, and I think Ed Eckstein was the A&R guy, or Jerry Griffin. Mm -hmm. And I, I did I Want to Dance with Somebody. And so I did the song. And I think Ed gave me a heads up. He says, you know what? Don't be offended if Clive says redo this, do this, or redo it, and everything like that. Mm -hmm. He does that with everybody. Mm -hmm. And you don't want to know what freaky, how freaky this was? He heard it, didn't want to touch it, though it was perfect. Really? Yeah. Everybody's kind of shocked at that, but I, yeah, Clive's a music man. I'm a music and song man as well, so we get along great. As far as working with other labels, I mean, I'll give you a story. When I work with the Rolling Stones on uh, Harlem Shuffle. Oh, that's right. And I did the song, and I wasn't happy with it, but everybody was. I wasn't. So I went on my own dime and, and redid it to where I was happy. I mean, I could just wrote it off and say, okay, everybody's happy, cool. Uh, it's mm -hmm. not me. Wow. Did they accept your version eventually, or did the original yeah. one? Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Well, so, a, a funny story is I brought the Uptown Horns in to do horn parts, kind of, because, you know, I wanted to make it a little more soulful. Uh-huh. And, and uh, the horn guys were great, and Jagger walks in, he starts hearing the horns, he says, stop tape, he says, what's the matter? He says, that's exactly what I didn't want. <laughs> really no horns <laughs> I, I thought they were great so i had to dismiss no. the horn players and i thought that they were they killed it but yeah <laughs> <laughs> wow oh, that's great where do you keep your seven grammys uh right next to the toilet no seriously <laughs> nah, they're all over the place um, okay okay I, you know, I like my books better. I mean, as far as Grammys, I'm still owed a couple statues, which oh. I haven't gotten yet because they're slimy and they keep changing uh, heads. Okay. You know, they give, they give you these certificates. I said, dude, I produced it. Uh -huh. I arranged it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. it. And yeah. then they, they're fighting me on, on stuff like that. Are you kidding me? Yeah. It's like... You've worked um, on so much. Was there... What's one of the... I. As I mentioned, I think last time we talked, it's hard to keep track of when you were the engineer or when you were the mixer or when you were the producer. What are some of the albums that you were, you were the guy in charge, you were the producer, all decisions came through you? Well, when I had a partnership with Michael, you know, we, we produced uh -huh. them together. So, I mean, I guess when I went on my own corn. Um, oh, sure. Okay. Life of Agony, I know, it's a bunch of stuff. I don't have my list in front of me, but you know, okay. to tell you the truth, I, I was kind of like on everything. Yeah. Even yeah. when I was mixing, I was kind of my own boss because I knew what I wanted. 
And like that, that's where the headstrong came in, you know? I just felt confident and knew where to take something. Yeah. Well, and I get into fights, trust me. <laughs> you know, but, you know, I just, I don't know, maybe it was like Phil Spector, but I'm not crazy like that. But Yeah, maybe. Do you, um, would it be possible, do you think, if you put out some kind of like a box set or like a two or three disc compilation of your work? I wanted to. I actually wanted to put, you know, like what Time Life did. Yeah. I'd love to do like a dance CD of old dance mixes and, and, and sequence them like it's nonstop. Right. My stuff, my reggae stuff, pop, my hip hop. I would love to do that. The only question is I'd have to get a label like Time Life to do that because to, you know, to deal with every label, every, uh, every publisher would be a friggin' nightmare. Yeah. Yeah. I would love to do that. I always wanted to do that. I would love to hear that. You know, since we last talked, one of the artists that we discussed the first time was uh, Talk Talk and Mark Hollis. Right. And he's passed away since you and I talked the first time. Yeah, I know. And I wondered, tell us again, did you have, I can't remember, did you meet him personally or ever speak oh, with yeah. him? Oh, you did. Oh, what yeah. What was he like? He seemed like a really serious guy, Where way to, carried the weight of the world around with him. Uh, first song I worked on was It's My Life, and I believe Steve Roboski was A&Ring that song and asked me to do it. So I did the song. Needless to say, it was huge. Number one everywhere. I sound like Donald Trump now. <laughs> and I found out, I didn't meet Mark yet, but I found out Mark didn't really like it. So I, I remember Steve flying us to a show uh, where they play with the psychedelic furs. So I'm hanging out with Mark, says, Steve, man, what I don't like about it is you weren't adventurous enough. Mm. I said, oh, okay. I said, believe me, I'm appreciative of what you did and where we gotten, but I like more adventurous. So the next song I worked on was such a shame, and he friggin' loved that. Mm. But, you know, it's my life <clears throat> to me. I could have been experimental, gone crazy, but... It was such a great song. I wanted to keep the essence of the original uh, production when I did it. Right, right. It's such a shame. I added so many elements, and he loved it. Good. And we yeah. Were, he's, he's very introverted, hmm. but I liked him. I liked him a lot. Yeah. Yeah, he, uh, I love that band, and I just find them so fascinating. And uh, when you said, when we talked earlier about you having worked with them, I just was curious what your stories were, especially now that he's gone. It's so sad. I mean, he was sort of gone anyway. He had been incognito for like 25 right. years, you know, yeah, prior we lost, to... We lost touch probably in the late 80s. Okay. So, wow, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I really liked him. I loved the band. You know, certain artists, just, they are what they are, you know? Well, I'm like to be reclusive, and I know Mark wasn't the type of guy that wanted to be the pop star or anything like that. That was not his calling. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how many times a day do you get asked to talk about Appetite for Destruction? Uh. <laughs> That's what I thought. Next question. <laughs> That's what I thought. Oh, it's great. Yeah, that's why specifically when you came on the first time, because, you know, you're famous for talking about that or Injustice for All and all that kind of hard rock stuff. And I thought, I don't know if Steve gets a chance to talk about his alternative rock side and that's the part that means more to me and so that's kind of why i wanted to focus on that when we talked the first time 
That was such a great conversation, by the way. Thanks again for doing that. You know, what's interesting is I think you were the first producer that ever came on our show, and I had been trying to get several before that. And ever since you, I've been able to talk to like some of my other favorite producers, other sound guys like Julian Mendelson and Dave Bascom. And right, yeah, it's uh, it's just the best. Chris Hughes, all these people I greatly admire, and it's. I think it all started with you. They probably saw that I talked to you and thought, well, then I'll, I'll talk to him. Oh, that's, that's nice. You know, it's interesting, like, the evolution of music I worked on. It started off with dance music, then R&B, then we got into, I don't want to call it New Wave because I hate that expression, but, you know, we are working with bands like Tears of Fears, Ultravox, Psychedelic Furs, Missing Persons. I mean, that Motels, uh, I mean, the list goes on and on. Yeah. Hypical Works. That was a whole genre of music I loved. I called the WLIR era. Mm, that's right. They made that great documentary. I think you're in it. Yes, right? I am. Yeah. Yeah, yeah Dennis, that was great. Dennis is a very close and personal friend. And when I was a DJ, I, you know, I remember work, when I worked on Duran Duran, A Vito Would Kill, and all this, I would go to the station. I, and in fact, sometimes I'd do the morning show with him on the air. Really? Really, and I remember one time I opened up the show with In Excess, uh, Don't Change. Yes. Yeah. That was my opening song. No way. We would do the shows, and I would bring in certain songs I'd work on. And I actually got Producer of the Year awards in 87 from LAR. I still got the plaques. (laughs) That's wild. I always wanted to work with that band. I mean, I love them. I hope they're doing okay with their new singer. Yeah, I don't know what they're doing. Andrew has gone country. He's putting out a country album, which, uh, and it sounds good. It's just, what a change, you know? Oh, I, uh, I'd love to work with him at some point. You got, what What Paul McCartney album were you going to work on? Do you remember? Uh, the era would have been 85 to 87, somewhere around that time frame. Okay, so that sounds around press to play maybe would have been around that time you know it's uh, interesting i met with paul and i like i said i loved him he's great you know we smoked a joint together it was cool <laughs> hung out with linda and he played me his demos and i just felt he was still searching mm. and i said paul when you when you get something you're really happy with give me a call and he gave me his number in scotland at the time or something like that but we kind of lost touch but yeah, I think he was just still finding himself, and you know, if he hired me as a producer with him, it would have been a different story. Then I would have directed him. Yeah, did you ever meet Ringo? He's the, him and George. I never met. Never okay. met them. Uh, it's, it's sad, you know. Yeah, he works with a lot of my, my friends. Yeah, George, I would have loved to have met. I had so much admiration for George. Definitely. Definitely. If you had to pick your favorite Beatles song, what would it be? I don't have one. It's just really? too many. You know, I, 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 you know, stuff on Revolver I love, Abbey Road. Okay, okay. Just curious. All right. Well, look, this was fun. I had wanted to find an excuse to have you back because you're one of the best storytellers there is. Okay. And it's funny, you're so casual about all this stuff. Yeah, when I was hanging out with Paul and smoking a joint and and it's the rest of us out here are just dying. We're like, what? You did tell us everything, you know? But you're, you've had this charmed life that's just unlike anyone's. Okay, last question. And we don't, we don't have to 
get too deep into this, but you're very active on Facebook and stuff, speaking out about what's happening in our world today, especially our country. I don't know if you had any thoughts or opinions or feelings that you wanted to voice. If you don't, it's okay. I just, uh, this is a platform for you to share them if you wanted. I know that you especially have been very sensitive to race issues your whole life. Yeah, see, I grew up very liberal, okay? And I still have a lot of liberal tendencies. But for my upbringing, I was brought up in a mixed racial neighborhood. Thank God my parents never preached racism. They said, we don't care who you bring home as long as they're good people. We don't care. So racism to me never existed in my life. I, I never understood it. I never understood how a person could judge a person on skin color. Are you kidding me? How stupid is that? So, I, you know, I mean, I, I studied Martin Luther King, uh, Malcolm X, Eldridge Cleaver. Whom else am I missing? You know, in the 60s, hung out with Black Panthers, okay? I understood their cause. It, it, it drives me crazy. And to see that we're still going on through this in 2020, I feel as humans, we've failed. Yeah. Now, the other thing is, knowing cops, a couple of bad cops are ruining for the, for the rest of all the good cops. And that's sad. And I see the upper. I mean, I think it's cool that kids want to bring these issues out front. I don't agree with the methods. I don't think tearing down communities, burning things, uh, it only hurts. It doesn't help. And I, I think the consciousness of the world is woken up, which I think is a good thing. I really do. I don't believe in the violence. And then, you know, in our country where they're tearing down statues, I mean, and erasing history, there's a good example. The Holocaust, Auschwitz, that's still there or some form of it, because the Jewish people wanted people to remember that awful experience. And I mean, I mean, stuff like that's frightening to me that that's something like that ever existed. I just think people need to treat people how they want to be treated. And I think a lot of problems we have today is the lack of good parenting. I don't think uh, there's a lot of families that are broken. A lot of there's a lot of families that don't have dads. The, the schools, I, I'm sorry, but what they're teaching kids today is wrong. They're, they're not teaching properly. And you can't ignore world history. You, you know, what you do, you need to learn what, what, what was wrong and, and correct and make it right. Yeah. But, you know, and it bothers me. Like I said, for I've always been uh, a proponent of, you know, gay rights and the LGBT community and everything like that. Because I never looked at anybody differently, what color their skin is, what their religion is, what their sexual preference. It's just, you know, you've seen the eclectic amount of people I worked with. It never was an issue. Right. Right. And maybe I'm sheltered. And again, I grew up in, in Brooklyn, you know. A black Italian neighborhood. We're all brothers and sisters there, you know? Yeah. It it bothers me. It really bothers me that there are some bad apples out there, and they're destroying it for everyone else. I mean, civil rights from the 60s and 2000 is so different today. It's so much better. You know, and and obviously, I, I think it's important that, you know, everybody gets their fair shot and just treat people how you want to be treated. That's it. Forget about it race forget about their religion whatever yeah humans yeah. humans unfortunately humans have a history of being very violent which yeah. i never wanted to be a part of that 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 thing you know right. I, I just it just it, it just makes no sense to me it's to, as right. stock would say it's totally illogical i think too we um and maybe this is true for maybe this is true for 
the whole human race, but especially in America, we seem to have a fear of otherness, of people who are different than we are. Maybe they have different religious views or they come from a different part of the country or their color is different. Whatever it is, that otherness, we can't, so many people can't seem to get past that. And, it, and I don't know if that's, maybe that's what racism is, but I'm expanding it beyond just skin color. Anything that's different, you know, someone who has more money than we do or someone who, I don't know, has a better looking wife than we do. Whatever it is, that otherness, that thing that keeps us separate or we view that keeps us separate builds up a lot of resentment in people. And then it, they lash out on social media or in looting or I, I, whatever. I, I find that sad because, again, I can only go by my upbringing and what I feel. And I've always embraced new and different. You know, I've right. the whole world and. You know, give me something I don't know. I love it. I'll yeah. enhance it, you know? Yeah. But that's me. I can only speak for me. Yeah. I, I, you know, I assume a lot of people are sheltered where they are. Or I just don't think they have the proper upbringing, you know? Yeah. But yeah. It, it, it's important. It is. Especially we, now. Yeah, we all need to learn to love each other. And if you're going to be a scumbag, then fuck you. Leave my life. I don't care. I don't care what you look like. Yeah. If you're going to be a good person, I want to know you. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. But don't don't uh, trash anybody who's different than you. You have no right to. Right. I agree. All right. Well, I wanted to. You're always so thoughtful on Facebook. I wanted to give you a platform to kind of. Oh, I get I get in trouble. Somebody called me a racist once, which I I I, I just I, oh. I I I got floored. I am the least person to ever be. <laughs> right. I mean, I could tell you stories of me and Wu-Tang. I can't even bring up yeah. the word. You know, I walk in the studio, Riz go, hey, yo, what's up, mate? And he'd say, N, to me. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, and that was like a sign of respect. Yeah, I, I mean, it is. Yeah, I mean, but, you know, when somebody called me racist, I said, okay, I've had it. Okay, I mean, that's, that's so funny. I have to laugh. I said, it's obviously you don't know me. Right. Yeah, you know? I, there's no way someone could have the career that you've had for over 40 years, 45 years, if yeah. there was a drop of racism or yeah. prejudice or bigotry in there. Not yeah, to work with all the people Black you Panthers work with. In the early 70s, you'd think they improved. <laughs> yeah. no. They turned no. me out to Miles Davis, bitches brewing on the corner, man. <laughs> when I was in school in the 60s, we had a black woman, Dottie West, who was about 300 pounds, uh-huh. carried around a portable record player. First of all, school in the 60s, you could not do that. But right. all the teachers were afraid of Dottie. And Dottie's the one who turned me, we became good friends. She turned me on to James Brown in the 60s. Nice. Me banging James Brown while everybody's taking a test. And the teachers were afraid to say anything. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I love that stuff. See, you yeah. know, I did radio shows with BLS Kiss and KTU in New York. I drive in the middle of the harm at 3 o'clock in the morning with my top down blasting good yeah. old Parliament Funkadelic and James Brown and all that stuff. That's right. That's right. It's right more, on. You know, like like I said, I, I I just wish people would get a better grip on things. Uh, you you know the BLM and all this stuff. You know, I just hope they're not straying for the principles what they stand for. And to me, it seems like they're straying. And understand, you know, people are woken up. Thank God. I can't believe, like I said, I still can't believe we're dealing with this in 2020. Oh. But. I just want people to be able to live together, have all the same, mm-hmm. same man. You know, to me, I, nothing was ever handed to me. I mean, my dad told me to work. I've been working since I was eight years old. 
Yeah. Says, mommy and daddy are not going to be around forever. You better be able to fend for yourself. And probably the best lesson I learned. I always worked yeah. for my living. Yeah. It wasn't me. I wasn't privileged. Right. <laughs> you know, I'd spend like 23 hours out of 24 hours working my ass off. It didn't bother right. me. Yeah. Well, and when you're doing what you're doing, I mean, you've had a, you've had a, one of the best careers there is. I mean, to have been as heavily involved in the music that you've been involved in for so long. I mean, what a dream life. That's what I mean. Your whole life is just this dream. Well, you, you made it happen. You know, what's interesting. I feel like I'm the new kid on the block. Cause I always embrace, I want to work with new, new bands, new artists and everything right. like that. Um, I don't know if you're aware, I, I, I did this uh, one song. Uh, if you look on my website, it's called Revolution. Mm. You should check it out. Who's it by? Go on YouTube, Blitz Union. It's called uh, Revolution. I wrote the song and produced it. Awesome. I mean, it, it's so today. I, I did this about a year ago. I think about, they're from Prague. But Killer. If you go on my website, you'll get the true audio of it. There's three songs, and if you go in the audio, uh, oh, anybody out there, if they want to visit my website, it's stevethompsonproductions.com. And there's an audio section in there. You'll see a couple of songs by Blitz Union. It just rocks to me. Good. I basically did it where I added a little dance elements to it, but rock, you know, Jeez. some metal guitars and stuff like that. Uh. Yeah, if anyone who is interested in learning more, I mean, there are, what, dozens of pages of credits on your website? It just goes forever. There's so much stuff on there. Well, if anybody uh, wants to work with me, uh, there's, there's a form on my website you could fill out, and I'll, we'll get back to you. Good, good. All right. Thank you, Steve. You're the man. My there's pleasure. no one like you. Have a great day, all right? All right, there you have it. Steve Thompson, Milk and Honey. I'm curious if anyone out there owns this album, has heard it before, what your feelings about it are. 
I was torn. The more I listened to it to get ready to talk to Steve, the more I really, really liked it, including Yoko's stuff, which I was not expected to feeling that to feel that way. I have I've had issues with Yoko's music in the past, but I really liked most of the stuff that was on this album. Anyway, thank you to Steve, and thanks for everybody for listening. Now, next week, if our if our schedules work out right, we should have another deep dive. This one is. Well, we're going to discuss the sophomore slump of an 80s band whose debut album was huge, had three giant hits on it, and then their follow-up died. Died on the vine. So anyway, we're going to hear about that next week. Okay? Thanks, everybody. We love you.